Hannah Bay today, going to do some filming for our new series, The Overlook Jesus. Asking some questions about perceptions and perceptions people have about Jesus. So we're going to see what happens here out of Hannah Bay. Well, if you describe if there's a God, and would it be, the relationship be a two-way street? Why or why not? I would say it's probably millions of streets. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Millions. Okay. Millions and millions. Millions and millions of streets. Yeah. Okay. As in uh, Proverbs 3 6. Proverbs 3 6. Yeah. Acknowledge him and he's taking you fast. Could you explain why it's a two way street? Well, you know, it's a relationship, so, you know, it's like two people. Okay. You promised. Well, I suppose so, yeah. I would, I would, yeah. Because you have a certain, you have certain rules that go one way and, you know, you. Again, Jesus takes people's view of God and ideas about them and surprises them with a, with a freeing truth. A surprising truth, but a freeing truth about who God is. The truth is, relation with God is not so much a two-way street. I want to give that this morning. Um, Proverbs 3.6 even says it. Knowledge, knowledge him, he will make your path straight, right? Um, it's more like a one-way street with God. More like a one-way street with God. And he is in the driver's seat of one of those learner's vehicles. Now, are you guys familiar with these? Uh, I don't know if they use this here on K-Man. A learner vehicle, when you're 15, you learn to drive. Uh, what, what do you learn to drive here? Anyone know? No one has... 16, right? Do you have uh, learner's vehicles where you, get, right, you drive along and with someone in there? You do? Okay. Well, I remember, if you don't know what this is, all right, a learner's vehicle. Basically, I'm, just, I'm getting some curious looks. Basically, the idea is you're a teenager, nervous, sweating, you know, hoping you can drive so you can press some woman or man in your life. And uh, you got this person next to you who's typically has been your teacher in school, but now they take the form of person next to you in the car. And you drive along, and you know, they teach you things along the way. But in my version, I had this guy, um, Mr. Jones. He was this, uh, <laughs> this great guy, actually. He took me out for pancakes when we did this. Um, but he had this deep kind of Texas accent. He wore one of those kind of cool Texas ties. You know, I love those things. And he said, uh, he'd always say, now come on, son. And he'd get real mad at me. And that was his way of always saying, come on, son. And uh, basically, <laughs> he had this thing where I was driving like a normal car, but in the passenger seat, he had a brake. All right? And he was able to, 
to break, and in some versions of it, there even, there's even a separate uh, steering wheel. All right? Now, I'm going to come back to this later, but, but the best analogy you can come up with is a relationship with God is not so much a two-way street, but it's more like a one-way street with God and the driver's seat of a learner's vehicle. And I realize I'll have to explain this more because you don't want to think of God as a pimply-faced teenager you know, who's nervous driving around a road at 60 miles an hour. Um, so I will explain. I will come back to that. First, if you'd open your Bible to Luke 15. Jesus says this. Well, first we we get a description of what's going on. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, she just lose one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there was joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Pray with me if you would this morning. Lord, we ask that you would use your word powerfully this morning. God, may you remove every other distraction in our lives, but focusing on you and what you have to say to us. Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus here tells a parable. And I don't want to just assume we know what a parable is. Some do, some don't. A parable is a story or description that's designed to call forth a response from its hearers. Alright, so there's a very specific motive or reason for telling parables. That was to call forth a response from his hearers. It usually contained metaphors or symbols that the hearer can immediately relate to. One of the ways that when we can begin approaching parables is to look at to look at the major symbols or images, the dominant symbols of image or images that are in the parables, okay? So we're going to do that this morning, all right? Number one, we're going to look at the sheep and the coin, right? Pretty simple. They play a big role, right? Okay. Secondly, we're going to look at the shepherd and the sweeping woman, all right? The shepherd and the sweeping woman, or as I like to call her, sweeping beauty, Come on! Hey, oh! All right, that's unbelievable. <laughs> that's the best you're going to get. All right, or, and the third, which is really kind of the, the, the people behind the symbols, the tax collectors and sinners on the one hand, then you have the Pharisees and scribes on the other. But for our sake, I'll just call them the uh, irreligious and the religious, at least in the way they were viewed. So let's talk first. We're going to talk about the sheep and the coin to help us understand what's going on in this parable. How do we apply it to our lives? Well, 
First of all, we got the sheep. Now, this image of a sheep, what does it typically evoke? I was thinking about this this week. I think it typically evokes, you know, you got this ma- a man coming over the hill, leaping with his cute sheep, right? Hey! We think of still waters, cuddly lambs, dandelions, fluffy wool, you know, big stuffed animals. But in reality... These images were not cute and cuddly image, images. That's not the kind of thing Jesus was promoting. But rather, this symbol is really an, is an insult. It's an insult. It's a very purposeful insult. Jesus is doing again to is designed to have his hearers give a response to what he's saying. One, I've never seen a sheep that had this perfect all-white, you know, uh, Wool, you know, like woolite, like that detergent. I've never seen that. You know, if you actually get close to a sheep, it's usually kind of mangy looking. It's uh, like it's like a white towel that you find at the bottom of a thrift store bin. You know what I mean? You're like searching through a bin, you find a white towel. You're wondering why is there a towel at the thrift store? Who's going to buy this? And it's like kind of mangy. Like that's what a sheep really looks like. If you get up close, it's they're not that lovely. Um, but more importantly, and this is what Jesus intends. Sheep are really, really, really dumb. (laughs) They're not intelligent creatures at all. Listen to the words of a former shepherd. These are the words of a former shepherd before he went into actual ministry, pastoral ministry. Here's, Here's what he says. He gets it. He says this. A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its directions continually in a way that a dog or a cat never does. And when you find a lost sheep, it brushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its four legs together and its hind legs as well, put it over your shoulders and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. I was listening to another pastor um, talk about his, uh, some of his visitings to, to Britain. As an American pastor, he's going to the Great Britain and going through the back roads of Britain where he said you'd often find sheep on the back roads of Britain, various places, all right? And um, he said that even we tourists can see something and learn something about sheep in these instances. A sheep, no matter where it is, will always go for the grass, all right? Sees grass, it's going to go for it. It could be on the side of a mountain. It could be up a hill. It can literally be just, just right on the edge of a cliff. It's going to go for this grass, okay? And <laughs> while there, you can actually, you can watch them on the sides of the cliff. And in some cases, you'll actually watch a sheep. And you'll look at it one, you know, look away one minute, look back to it, and it's gone. And you're where'd the sheep go? Well, if you really want to know, go to the edge of the cliff and just look down, and you will find sometimes a sheep that has plummeted to its death. Right? This is sad for many of us. I mean, if you love an animal, I don't mean to be crass, but, but uh, this happens with sheep because they're going for the grass. It's all they know. Well, that gives you a little taste of what Jesus is saying about sheep. Let's, let's analyze. You want to analyze the symbolism with me? Jesus is trying to tell something trying to explain something to you and me about ourselves. Right? It's tough to hear this. I know I'm not, this is where the laughs might stop for a moment. 
and you look at me like, oh, he's a sheep. But this is what Jesus is saying. In John chapter 6, Jesus responds to some people who just ate a lot of bread and a lot of fish. All right, John chapter 6, they just ate, 5,000 people have just ate a lot of bread and a lot of fish that he provided. And they come back to him. They find him. They search long and hard for him. Because they want to hear more of his teaching? No. Because they even want the miracles? No. They just want more bread and fish. But Jesus responds to them this way. He asks them to look at their heart and ask them what their spiritual food is. What does your heart feed on? Because Jesus stood before them as the bread of life, as he would explain. I'm going to tie this back into the sheep here in a moment. Everyone feeds their heart on something. Everyone feeds his or her heart on something. Success, people, I don't know what it is, opposite gender, money, but when those things fail, and we know they fail, we're like sheep. We can't get out. We're stuck. Now, why is that? Because we based our life on these things, right? We don't know what to go back to other than the trough that we've always fed at, right? As I mentioned before, this idea might repulse you. You might find it a little bit repugnant, especially since Jesus is promoting the idea that all of us are hopelessly lost in sin, You don't know what sin is. I'll define that for you as well. Sin is a disease within us that causes us to naturally tend toward acts of rebellion against our Creator. That's the way I'm going to describe it. It's a disease within us that causes us to naturally tend towards rebellion against our Creator. The things He says, the laws He gives. We naturally tend towards rebelling against those things because of a kind of disease within us. Right? A disease you can't get rid of on your own. And you get rid of symptoms. You can stop symptoms for a little while, but you can't get rid of disease just on your own. And the idea of original sin, which Jesus is promoting here, is the idea that we're basically born with this disease. The sin entered our world, came into our world, and now all of us were born with it. I have a good friend, Carl, explained weeks ago, I love that, that analogy that, that one of the reasons we know we have this disease, if you look at children, one of their top five words they seem to say, maybe seven, is no. Like, out of the womb. You know, when they start to communicate, no. They, they somehow learn it through osmosis. There's something they watched on TV. I don't know how. I tried to keep them from it. But we, we all have this inclination to say no. But for many years, our, our society, our culture, Western culture, bought into this idea that man is basically and inherently good. All right? This idea started many years ago with Enlightenment thinkers. Uh, here's, a little, here's a little fun philosophy for you. Uh, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, who, by the way, is not to be uh, confused with uh, Jacques Cousteau, uh, the swimmer, National Geographic guy. Um, they may, he may have also had this thought, too. But and it continued through the Romantic period in Europe with uh, poets like Shelley, Percy Shelley and, and Keats. The idea that man 
is basically good if left to himself. That the idea is that man is good, but it's money, it's politics, it's even religion that corrupts people. And this idea was promoted even further moving on through history when we had things like the scientific method which helped us have so many progressions in science and math. And then we had the Industrial Revolution where man was just creating so much. I mean, it's basically good. But today, even if you ask people at great colleges, university, among these intelligentsia, they agree that these thinkers are no longer correct. Why? Because the facts of history fly in the face of the idea that man is inherently good. Right? Think about our history, 20th century. Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, global terrorism in the 21st century. And we see it on smaller levels as well. When, when Katie and I moved to this island, we, we love the fact that uh, the police and others have done such a remarkable job of putting together measures and, and immigration laws are in place in, in a really, uh, really solid way to prevent crime. One of the things that attracted us to this island, but, but we've seen that no law can prevent the human heart from doing what it does by nature. And that is sin. You can have the best police force, the best laws, the best society, but man will still sin. I was reading this secular critic and essayist named Randall Gerald said it this way. Most of us, and this is again a sort of secular critic, most of us know now that Rousseau was wrong. Man, when you knock his chains off, he sets up the death camps. Soon we will know everything the 18th century didn't know about selfish greed and violence. Selfish greed and violence. You see, we, but here's the issue. We find ourselves in our society in a bit of schizophrenia. On the one hand, we think, man, the people who used to think that way, most people say are wrong. I mean, clearly we've seen if you leave man to his own devices, he will corrupt power. He will corrupt other people and himself will become corrupted. But on the other hand, no one wants to say that man in his heart tends towards sin. That his, when he's born and when he, when he lives, when he grows up, he tends towards sin. He naturally moves towards rebellion. No one wants to say that either because that's repugnant. In fact, I had one professor tell me it was a wicked fairy tale that idea when I was in college. But which one is it? Right? You, you can't live in both places. I think the reason we have the schizophrenia is because we'd rather at least be cats or dogs, but we don't want to be sheep. Right? Because it's really saying something hard to swallow about, about ourselves. But in the words of uh, Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite quotes, it's a Facebook quote for me, it made my Facebook page, so it's big time, is she says this, she's a great uh, novelist of the 20th century, she said, the truth doesn't change according to our ability to stomach it. Right? And we know this from life, there's some things that are hard to swallow, this is one of them, and I know that, it's hard for me to swallow. And Jesus only intensifies this metaphor of sheep in the next passage 
by comparing us to a lost coin. At least sheep can... Right? <laughs> you might hear a sheep. It might call out for help. A coin, it's got nothing. Imagine yourself as a coin. Yeah, you might think, oh, I'm a shiny new coin. Maybe if the sun hits me, gleams the right way, someone will find me. But of course, it's totally not up to you. Jesus is saying, well, only your sheep, let's go further. Intensification of this metaphor. A coin. You can't do anything on your own. You can't be found on your own. I want to explore this with you because I want us to feel this sense of helplessness in our lives. Because I think we all feel it at different times. I want to bring that to mind this morning in this sermon. A feeling of helplessness is often alarming, isn't it? Right? Where you can't do anything for yourself. Like this picture. I just love this picture. Can you see it there? It's like that's a feeling of helplessness if when, you, when you fly. Um, hopefully that will never happen, any of you. But watching your child stumble, you know, and start to fall off a playground set. Right? You're, like, you're, you're, you're about 10 feet away, 15 feet away. They're stumbling. You're like, I, anything can happen. This point, right? It's an awful feeling, especially if you're watching someone else's children, right? Yeah, I'm going to watch your children for you. Oh my gosh, please don't. Yeah, it's an awful feeling. In a group setting, ever been in those situations where someone puts you on the spot and no matter what you say, you're trapped? Right? Hey, Jim, tell us about that story about uh, your this and this. And like one person sitting there, this story would clearly insult. But if you don't tell it, you're insulting this other person. It's a no-lose situation. Feeling of helplessness. Uh, that dream, you ever had that dream where you're drowning? Some people have the falling off a cliff dream, you know, or the oh, buried alive dream. It's the worst. Feeling of helplessness. We all have it because it's common to man. Because we're all lost in sin. Any situation like this that helps us feel the truth of our condition is helpful because we are lost in sin, trying as hard as we can to find our way back, but we're hopelessly lost. Paul tells us the truth of our conviction. The Apostle Paul, Romans 9, 16. He's talking about our salvation. And he says this. He says, It does not therefore... Depend on man's desire or his effort. Your salvation is dependent on your desire or your effort. It's all dependent on God's mercy in your life. Whew, that's humbling. We're totally helpless without Jesus' mercy. But thankfully it's Jesus who carried back lost sheep to the Father on his shoulders because he carried on his shoulders the weight of our sin as well. That's the happy ending of this. And don't worry, it's going to get good. We're going to, we're going to bring you out of this despair and this mire. I want, to, I want to mention this last thing. I once did an experiment with a young crowd to make this point. We had a bunch of volunteers coming through our doors. We asked them to loan us something, something valuable. So we collected wallets and cell phones and car keys. I thought about doing that this morning, but I realized we might reduce our congregation by half. And so I decided not to in the end. So, but we hid them all over this building, all right? And uh, this was years ago. And uh, lost it on purpose to make a point. And that coin for them, the purses, keys, cell phones, had no chance of being found on their own. That was the point. Thankfully, uh, after that, we gave them a chance to feel what it'd be like to play the role of God a little bit, to look for their valuable treasures. So we watched everyone pursue their valuables with reckless abandon, 
Right? Unrelenting force. I mean, people just going after things. We gave them five minutes to do it. I mean, it was crazy. It was like, it was like Hillary Clinton looking for a lost pantsuit. You know what I'm saying? She was just after it. All right. <laughs> just want to make fun of our own government. If you, but if, if it offends you, you can just email me later. Ryan at gmail.com. It's my email address. Uh, Ryan at gmail.com. Uh, we all know the feeling, though. You lose something. You look at a couple places. You get a little worried, right? Where is it? First, you start talking to yourself. At least I do. Like, I mumble. You know, just that thing. Then as you search, you ignore everything else going on, but you begin to talk louder, hoping other people will hear you. Listen to me. I'm looking for something. That means you're supposed to help, right? Even though that person's maybe never seen that object before in their lives, they're supposed to help you. Finally, it escalates into the blame fest, right? It's the, uh, uh, have you seen my iPod? Have you seen it? Hmm? Hmm? Right? And you're, not, you're just like, no, I haven't seen it. Are you making me feel like this? Right? This happens sometimes. Sometimes in marriages, maybe with a roommate who likes to play practical jokes and then have a bad reputation. We all know this feeling. This, we're obsessed. We don't listen to people. We have to find this. That's how I am about some things. It's a single-minded, relentless pursuit. And that kind of single-minded, relentless pursuit is indicative, is emblematic of the God we worship, the God of the Bible. He is the great initiator, the great pursuer, the great rescuer. He moves first. He pursues. He rescues. I want to plug our new children's curriculum. We just started a new children's curriculum uh, using this Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Illustrations by Iago, which I just love the fact that it's a one-person name for the illustrations. Iago. I'd like to meet him. But anyhow, um, this is it. It's great. Uh, the Bible tells great stories. Um, but it, it shows the thread uh, of how all the Bible points to Jesus. Either our need for Jesus throughout the Bible or how Jesus has rescued and is rescuing us. So in the Old Testament, it shows how every story of the Bible points to our need for Jesus. It's so awesome how the Bible fits together and our kids can see how the Bible all points to Jesus. Not in like we're making this up way, but in a real way. Anyway, plug for that. Every, uh, actually every family uh, who kind of attends our church regularly will be receiving one of these uh, today. So excited about that. Uh, for free. For free. There you go. If you, if you don't have a family, I guess you've got to start one to get one of these. Sorry. <laughs> so let's do that. But God, he's the great initiator, great pursuer, he tells us this in the great passages of the Old Testament, Amos chapter 4. Amos is a prophet from Judah, but he goes up to Israel. And I'm telling you, we're going to preach on this passage sometime. But he says this. God says to the people of Israel, I gave you empty stomachs in every city. Oh, no, go back. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. Notice this pattern. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
I sent plagues among you as I did in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. Along with your captured horses, I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning snick, <laughs> stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I've seen this statement, actually in the backwoods, uh, where I used to live in the southeast in Appalachian Mountain, where said, you see these scary signs that say, prepare to meet your God. I think they're meant to frighten me as I'm driving along the road. But it's actually a blessed verse. What God is saying is, I've done all these things in your life to get to you. Because you wouldn't listen to me. You wouldn't follow me. You turned away from me. And I'll do whatever it takes. Even if it's destroying all your idols. All the things you find comfort in. All the places your heart feeds. I'll wreck them if it means I get to be with you. And you get to be with me. To prepare to meet your God. It's what I like to call, it's an important principle here. Um, important biblical principle. Does anyone know what two animals in the Bible are most often compared to Jesus? All right? Jesus is called two animals in the Bible. Anyone want to, a lamb and a lion, right? So I like to call this, this passage points towards what I like to call the lion and lamb principle. That Jesus, like a lion, will tear apart any idol, any false comfort in our lives to get to us. And it will hurt. But like a tender lamb, when he gets to us, he'll love us, care for us, treat us tenderly. He does both. Jesus is both. There's a story of a guy who was driving on the New Jersey Turnpike. This is in the States on a fast, fast highway. A hundred yards ahead, he saw a Lincoln Town Car. And the passenger side suddenly just flew open while going full speed. And much of this guy's surprise, out of the car was flung a collie, a dog, onto the pavement, going 60, 70 miles per hour. The dog hit the concrete violently and, and it rolled into a ditch. It was bleeding. But the collie got up. This is why I want to tell this story. The collie got up and it ran after its master. That is the sometimes messy, sometimes violent, but dogged pursuit of Jesus in our lives. That even though we cast him to the side, we treat him with contempt, and we leave him, when he finds us, he rejoices. He still comes after us, doesn't he? Let's look at tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees and scribes, the irreligious and the religious, because this is where it's all going to come together. We looked at the state of our own hearts. We looked at who Jesus is in response to that. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. I love that phrase. That phrase grumbled. 
Uh, in English literature, we call it uh, onomatopoeia. There's just word onomatopoeia that you, uh, I think that's it. The idea that the word actually sounds like the definition, right? Grumble. One of the great words in the English language. But when you feel helpless, if you were a tax collector or a sinner, when the most socially powerful people in the world look down on you like this, quick background. Why do they look down on people like this? Well, one, the tax collectors, they were Jewish agents. They collected taxes for Rome. They detested, so Jewish people detested these tax collectors because they were aligning themselves with the government and against God. All right, so one, these tax collectors were going against God because they were for the government. Two, they cheated people out of taxes. They often charged too much. And so most of the Jewish nation, really, you you were kind of despised if you were a Jewish person as a tax collector. Sinners, and one of the words here is actually used word in the rest of the New Testament for, for, for murderers or robbers. Sinners were those who obviously didn't follow God's law, right? The people you look at, the, the, the murderers, the robbers, the thieves, the deceivers, the charlatans. And Jesus hangs out with such people. Why? Because they truly sense their own helplessness. They were ready to receive the gospel and his mercy in their lives. Note the connection between, we, didn't, we, we read this last week, if you read the blog, it was on there, but he ends verse 35, this passage saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, who's hearing? Starting in verse 15. This is the same audience. Alright, we looked at 14, verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Who's hearing? It's the tax collectors and the sinners because they sense their own helplessness. The great Baptist pastor, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century, love this guy, said, said it this way, the first link between my soul and Jesus is not my goodness, but my badness, not my merit, but my misery, not my riches, but my need. And I know this offends the human heart, but it can become and lead to a liberating reality. It has for my life. contrast between these two groups, the religious and the irreligious, tells us something else about parables. Jesus almost always used parables to catch people, to catch them short on their attitudes or beliefs, to provide a little twist in the story so that they change just slightly what they believed. So like in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, people often tell this parable, oh, because the Samaritan was so nice and loving and he was to help this poor man who was beaten and left on the side of the road. But that's not the ultimate point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan is really about Jesus pointing out the prejudice in the Pharisees' hearts towards Samaritans, the racism in their heart towards Samaritans. Because they're thinking, oh, oh yeah, someone's going to come around and see this guy and they're going to help them. They're expecting someone to help this person. But it's a Samaritan. Oh. That's what Jesus does. Tax collectors already knew they were sinners. That's why they're all drawing near to him. Jesus provides a twist because he is not really speaking this parable to the tax collectors and sinners. The, Jew, the, the scribes and the Pharisees think he is. Oh, this is, for the, this is for the tax collectors and sinners. No. It's for the religious people. For the religious people. Unless you admit sin and repent... You'll never change. You'll always be a sheep. Right? 
people who are confident in their own goodness, it won't happen. And the only thing worse than being a sheep is not knowing that you're a sheep. Right? When you don't know the truth of your condition. And so they grumble. They grumble because they know they're sheep. They grumble for the same reason that many of us grumble. Why do we, why do we sometimes grumble? Why, why do they grumble in this passage? Verse 2. You'll find your answer. I think it's because we want to be viewed both as good and we want to be valued or celebrated. I want us to catch this. It's important for our lives. I know in my own life, I often want to be valued, celebrated, but I also want to be viewed as good. And friends, what Jesus is saying is we can't have both. We can't have both. You must choose. Being valued, celebrated by our Heavenly Father comes through acknowledging your own helplessness that results from sin. And so, a relationship with God not so much a two-way street, more like a one-way street with God and the driver's side of a learner's vehicle. Jesus is, is driving the vehicle and we can respond, we can put on the brake. Right? We can swerve off the path. But man, it'd be a whole lot easier. It'd be a whole lot more freedom to sit back and I can actually say this in a sermon, really let Jesus take the wheel. Right? In our lives. If you recognize your own helplessness and sin, I would encourage you to bring it before Jesus or keep bringing it before Jesus and celebrate with your rescuer. If you're having a hard time seeing your helplessness and like me, whew, I want to I be viewed as good. God, I want to be viewed as good. I want people to respect me, to like me. But also, I want to be celebrated. I want to be valued. You're going to have to make a choice. But no matter where you're at this morning, this sermon isn't about you or what you can do. It's about the relentless pursuit of our great pursuer. In many ways, the application of the sermon, it's a prayer. It's hard to apply the sermon and take it out. What are we going to do with this? What we're going to do, I pray, is plead with God. Plead with God to remember these words that Jesus gave us. And that he make it clear to us this week that he is pursuing hearts. Would you plead that with me this week? To remember the words of Jesus. To pursue hearts. To go after lost sheep and lost coins. So we might be saved. And come to a knowledge of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. As we begin to worship you during this time. We thank you for pursuing us. And we acknowledge that we, we can't do this on our own. Our hearts won't let us, Lord. We want to feed at the same trough. We want to go off and do our thing. And we're in need of rescuing. So Jesus, one, I pray for those of us who want to be valued, celebrated, but also want to be, appear as good, as religious people, Lord. Put on our hearts, we have to make a choice. Secondly, Jesus, we, we plead with you to pursue hearts. We know that we... This is not a sermon. This is not a passage where we can really do a lot other than pray, other than plead with you to pursue us, to pursue the hearts of others in our lives. 
We learn something great about you, though, Jesus, that you never give up on us. You pursue us. And we love you for it. We ask this in your name. Amen.